In the endless quest for talent, federal contractors sometimes use foreign employees. A long-running program called E-Verify lets them confirm such employees are eligible to work in the United States. The Government Accountability Office has found, though, agencies aren't consistent in checking the E-Verify system as part of their contractor oversight. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Rebecca Gambler. Ms. Gambler, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. And let's talk about the E-Verify program. This goes back quite some years. This is not like a five-year-old electronic digital services plan, but this goes back decades, correct? That's right, Tom. The program that became the E-Verify program was uh, first established as a pilot program back in the mid-90s, and it is a largely voluntary program that employers can use to verify the employment eligibility status of newly hired employees. But as you mentioned, some employers, uh, particularly federal contractors, can be required to use the E-Verify program. Got it. So the E-Verify, the verification is done to the individual employee, correct, that applies to E-Verify. These are people with green cards, for example? Right, Tom. So for federal contractors who are required to use the E-Verify program, they use that program for all newly hired employees or individuals who are employed and working on the federal contract. So it applies to all employees of the federal contractor to include newly hired employees as well as those working on the contract. But as the process works, if you want someone to work for your company, that person has to get the eligibility from the government. How does it work? Thank you, Tom. Yes. So when employers, and in this case, we're speaking about federal contractors, enroll in the E-Verify program, they sign a memorandum of understanding to participate. The program is run by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or E-Verify, and then employers check employees' information against government records to confirm whether or not they're eligible to work in the U.S. All right. And then, as you pointed out, all companies do this, but federal contractors have special obligations. The government wants to make sure that they are checking E-Verify as a backup sort of check from what the government has already issued to those employees. That's right, Tom. By law, all employers are required to confirm the work eligibility of newly hired employees by checking their documents through a process that people may hear referred to as the I-9 process. The E-Verify program is a program that allows employers to electronically confirm that employment authorization beyond the I-9 process or in addition to the I-9 process. It's largely a voluntary program for employers. There are about a million employers who are enrolled in the E-Verify program, but some employers to include federal contractors can be required to use the E-Verify program. And you did some samples of federal agencies to find out whether they were checking over their contractors to make sure the contractors were verifying people through I-9 or through E-Verify. And what were the agencies and what did you find? The Federal Acquisition Regulation, or the FAR, requires federal agencies to include a clause in federal contracts for contractors to enroll in and use the E-Verify program with a few exceptions. 
So we selected three agencies for our review, the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services, and we selected 24 contracts for our sample. In looking at those 24 contracts, we found that 22 of them did include that required clause in their contracts, the clause requiring them to use E-Verify, and two did not. But the other thing that we looked at, Tom, was whether or not for those contracts, the fact that the E-Verify clause was included was also whether or not that was also noted in the federal procurement data system. And for that piece of the review that we did, we found that not all of the contracts were accurately noted in the federal procurement data system as having the E-Verify clause included in them. We're speaking with Rebecca Gambler. She's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So is this a simple record-keeping and compliance type of issue that you found, or could there be uneligible people working on federal contracts, do you think? So with regard to this specific finding, it was really about the three agencies in our review taking steps to better ensure that their contracting staff are correctly noting in the federal procurement data system those contracts that include the E-Verify clause. And that's really important so that federal agencies and Congress and others can have accurate information about the extent to which the required E-Verify clause is being included in federal contracts. And it has to be in every federal contract that involves labor provided by the contractor? It needs to be in federal contracts, Tom, that exceed $150,000 and has a period of performance of more than 120 days, is not only for work performed outside the U.S. or isn't only for commercially available off-the-shelf technology. So contracts that meet those criteria are required to have that E-Verify clause in the contract such that federal contractors would be enrolling in and using E-Verify. Got it. And is there a mechanism, though, that once that clause is in the contract, that the employer is actually using E-Verify? Because you can have something in a contract clause, but that doesn't mean it happens. Yes, this is a really important point uh, from our report, Tom. Federal agencies do have responsibilities for monitoring the extent to which federal contractors are complying with the E-Verify clause and actually enrolling in and using the E-Verify program. But among the contracting officials that we interviewed for our work, we found that in a number of cases, federal agencies were not monitoring their contractors' compliance with use of the E-Verify program. They identified a variety of reasons for that, including that they thought maybe another agency was responsible for doing it or because uh, they didn't think they were required to do so. So we made a recommendation, Tom, to OMB to issue guidance to clarify expectations for federal agencies to monitor contractor enrollment in and use of the E-Verify program. Yes, you had a long list or eight recommendations. That sounds like the top of the list. What are the highlights of the other recommendations? We also found that USCIS used to provide periodic reports to federal agencies that included a list of federal contractors and whether or not they enrolled in and used E-Verify. 
We heard from some contracting officials that those reports were helpful for monitoring purposes, but USCIS stopped issuing those reports last year because of data quality issues. And so we recommended that USCIS implement an approach to collect better quality information on federal contractors' enrollment in the E-Verify program and then make sure that they communicate that information to federal agencies to help them monitor contractor compliance. So that was another key recommendation we had, Tom. So lots of people have work to do. USCIS itself, the Office of Management and Budget, and the contracting agencies themselves all have a task here. That's right. We made recommendations to the three agencies that were included in the scope of our review, as well as OMB and USCIS. And these recommendations are really important to help ensure that the federal government has accurate information on the extent to which the E-Verify clause is being included in contracts to ensure then that federal agencies are appropriately monitoring federal contractors' compliance with the E-Verify clause, and that USCIS is providing quality information to help federal agencies fulfill their monitoring responsibilities. And did you get a mostly, yeah, you're right, kind of reaction to these recommendations? We did. The agencies to which we made the recommendations concurred with them and identified uh, actions that they have planned to work toward addressing them. Rebecca Gambler is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.